You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Steve, this morning we're faced with a new reality. We're looking at real social distancing. In Ohio, restaurants are closed. I was telling you the other day, my brother-in-law owns three restaurants in Cleveland. They're all closed. What do you see happening next? Well, we're, we're now openly acknowledging that we're two weeks behind Italy. We're staring at what's happening there, and we're staring at the climb up of numbers in the United States, and we're seeing that there are several hot spots, major outbreaks that are growing. We're moving towards this rather, we went, we've gone through in a very short period of time, a, a kind of radical and sweeping transformation of our behavior as individuals, but also as institutions. So we see, as you pointed out, businesses, restaurants, employers, sporting events across the board, uh, moving towards suspension of those for at least a few weeks, if not longer. The timeline, you had CDC issue its recommendation, no gathering bigger than 50 people for the next eight weeks. The timeline is starting to change. People are beginning to understand that the uh, we are entering this unknown period, this unprecedented period. I'm struck by how calm and orderly this has been to have a country of 327 million people through this in the space of just a few days is quite kind of astonishing. Um, I don't know that it's going to stay calm and orderly. Uh, we haven't hit the moment when we are beginning to know individuals, family, friends, colleagues who are diagnosed uh, with the coronavirus, uh, who become ill. We haven't seen the uh, surge upon medical facilities in our localities. We're not yet seeing the excruciating decision process that doctors and others will face when there are acute shortages of ventilators and protective gear in terms of the just the triage of who gets the high-end treatment required to sustain life and who's denied. We're not at that moment yet, but we're not far off. Do you think that we've been getting mixed signals from the administration? The administration has been, since the very beginning, sending out highly confusing, contradictory messages and it continues to this day. I mean, you know, the president yesterday, Sunday afternoon in the press conference, opened the press conference, exhorted everyone to relax. Everything was going to be okay. That's not the message that uh, was delivered by others who were up on that podium, including uh, Dr. Tony Fauci. So the, the contradictions have been around how serious is this? How disruptive is this going to be? Uh, how long is it going to last? How soon will we have vaccines? How soon will we have tests? The testing debacle has been an enormous concern. You saw last night, the first hour of the White House press briefing was consumed with describing what lies ahead in the testing side, where they're turning to private businesses, the private sector, to do a crash expansion of testing around the country to try to ameliorate the pressure and, and answer the condemnation they received from all directions. Well, why do you think um, the mixed messages continue to persist? Dr. Fauci, um, who's well known to us at CSIS, 
um, has been on this podcast before, continues to say that he wouldn't fly. He wouldn't go to a restaurant. Um, he's all but told us that we basically need to stay home. Where is the disconnect? Let me step back for a moment. I mean, we are a rigidly divided society, right, a- into tribalist camps. And um, if you re- if you watch Fox News and you listen to uh, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingraham, the narrative that comes across from that universe, this problem is overstated. Um, it's being hyped. Things are going to be okay. And don't believe the worst versus the other narrative, which is coming along saying we're in a dangerous pandemic. Our lives are going to be disrupted. We have no choice but to change. We uh, it's better to overreact than underreact. Our testing system has failed us. Uh, everything is not okay on that front. Um, we're going to have to self-isolate. Some of the the Fox News, Hannity, Lam, Limbaugh crowd is also labeling this as the Wuhan virus, labeling it as something that is coming from without that we need to uh, contain and exclude versus focusing on the fact that it's fully upon us and we are blind because of our testing debacle. We're trying to overcome that, but we're only a short time behind the Italians. Now, the paradox with respect to Dr. Fauci is that as the confusion around the administration has persisted and worsened, as the uh, falsehoods, the uh, stumbles, the incompetence uh, have continued, public trust has begun to fall away. And in the midst of all of that, paradoxically, this one person, Tony Fauci, the head of the National Institute for Allergies and Infectious Diseases, has emerged as a true oracle, as a truth teller to the American people and to the administration and others as to what we face. And he's done this. He's emerged in this role in a way that he has in past crises. He's been very respectful of the president. He's not sought out opportunities to be directly confrontational, but the positions he's taking are clearly contradicting the messages that the president um, has issued just a short while before. So he's very artful in the way that he goes about doing this as the oracle. And I would add, there are other voices that are of senior people who served in the Trump administration who have gravitas and credibility on this issue. Scott Gottlieb, former head of FDA, Tom Bossart, former head of Homeland Security in the White House, who are also, and I would put Tom Frieden in this camp, those three are sort of the the external oracles. They're the chorus backing, in a way, in effect, uh, much of what Fauci is saying. And as let's just go through those key points, right? And, and let's not forget, Dr. Fauci is 79 years old himself. He's 79 years old. He's been the head of NIAID since 1984. He is a legendary scientist, infectious disease expert, immunologist. He's had groundbreaking scientific achievements in rheumatology, in HIV, in Ebola, and the developing of vaccines and therapies for Ebola. But he's also shown courage. I mean, listen, he's not a pandemic emergency response expert, but over time he has emerged 
as the person most trusted by the media, most trusted by Republican and Senate leadership in Congress, most trusted by a string of presidents. And he's bold. I mean, when he grew frustrated with the logjam in the 80s the, uh, around HIV, you remember? HIV was discovered, first discovered in June of 1981. It was not until 1987 that President Reagan even uttered the word. Uh, what did Fauci do? He conspired with the Surgeon General to mail out a powerful document stating the facts about the HIV crisis to 87 million Americans. He's not unaccustomed to doing this. During the dark days of the plague of HIV, when we didn't have solutions, uh, the development of medications were, was going through a very plotting and bureaucratic process, and you had activists emerging on behalf of those uh, living with HIV or threatened by HIV, and they were becoming angrier and angrier and more and more confrontational. They seized FDA at one point. Tony Fauci's response to that crisis was to say, pause for a moment, come inside, sit down and talk to me. You have views that I need to better understand, and you need to understand me, and this is something we share as a crisis. And out of that, the wheels of government began to turn much faster in the approval and processing of treatments and therapies that were coming through the pipeline. So, Steve, Americans are understandably really nervous now. Everybody's, you know, rushing to the stores to, you know, load up on groceries. The shelves are, are bare. People are running out to get gas. Elderly are staying home and ordering. It's a tough time. I mean, our towns are turning into ghost towns. This isn't something Americans are accustomed to doing. And Fauci and others in the administration are at the center of it, trying to keep everybody calm. What are Americans supposed to do right now? Who are they supposed to listen to and what can we expect in the days to come? We can expect our testing to expand pretty quickly. We can expect our discovery of how much vi true virus there is um, in the United States to, to increase dramatically. We're going to begin to see much more infection of the coronavirus among people that we know, people that are near us and who we know. We're going to see a, a rush to clinics and hospitals where the shortfalls are going to um, be most acute. I think we need in this period to do a couple of things. One is for people to stay calm, to self-isolate and take this all very seriously, to wash hands constantly, to be very cautious and supportive of one another, to limit their interactions, obviously, if they're self-isolating, do it to the maximum extent possible. Figure out ways to keep oneself entertained and comfortable uh, in what is going to be a very uncomfortable and frightening and disrupted period. The second thing I'd say is we're not going to have a vaccine for some time. We're going to go through this phase without a vaccine. We don't know how long this will stretch out but it's at least an eight to 12 week period that we're staring at. So let's get our minds around that, around that kind of extended disruption. And let's, while tests are very important and people are going to want to know their status 
and and the status of their loved ones. We are coming into this very late. Let's also not lose sight of what need to be the top line priorities in this next period. And those are that our hospitals are prepared for the surge of cases that will come to them. And let's try to get people to not rush in if they don't need to rush in in order to so that those hospitals are not overrun to the point of near collapse, which is what has happened in Italy. Let's make sure that supply chains are functioning on the critical gear, the protective gear, the gloves, the gowns, the masks that our health providers require if they're going to avoid infection and be able to function uh, ably and free of free of fear. Let's focus on the critical supply of ventilators. Those are going to be most important in sustaining life among those in critical condition who will be experiencing this acute respiratory disorder syndrome that people experience where uh, that's life-threatening. Let's get those out of the stockpile. Let's figure out the supply chain on those. And let's accelerate the development of alternative medical settings um, because we don't have the beds. We don't have the ICU beds required, uh, and we're going to need uh, to expand those numbers very dramatically. Do we need to start thinking about use of the military? This came up in the Democratic presidential debate last night, and Vice President Biden said he would absolutely call on the military. Do we need to start thinking about using our military to build hospitals and other things? We've already seen the deployment of the National Guard at Governor Cuomo's directive uh, into New Rochelle, where they were uh, helping deliver uh, meals and, and commodities to those who were in the uh, lockdown. They were providing, I'm assuming, some measure of local order. So we've already we've already moved in that direction. I believe that in this next phase, there's there there's going to be clear gaps in our capacities to handle this. And there's only going to be a few places that we turn and that we will turn in, inexorably towards the National Guard. What is it that they will provide? Local order. They will provide military hospitals. The military potential, you know, it has certain capacity that's there for the readiness of our own troops. And our military is not going to want to put at risk the readiness of U.S. troops, but they uh, we'll have some capacity that can be added in in terms of military hospitals. We're going to be suffering acute shortages of skilled medical personnel. If we have to move to a very large volume of ventilators to sustain people in ICU facilities, we're going to need military, uh, we're going to need medical personnel competent and trained in that setting. Supply chains are going to be disrupted, and, and the military is very good at keeping supply chains going and keeping logistical supplies moving forward, bringing commodities, bringing construction gear and equipment. Uh, if it's a quick question of crash construction of medical facilities, keeping the supply lines of commodities and construction materials. Why do we have such a shortage of ventilators and other critical equipment, including testing? Well, the testing is a mystery. And let me just step back for a moment. I mean, the CDC has a great record of being among the best in the world and developing very, very good tests very rapidly. In this case, it stumbled uh, terribly. 
over an extended period of time, and we still do not fully understand how and why that happened. And now we've moved after this long, dangerous period of not having a test being used in the United States, we've moved to permitting a, a wide array of actors uh, to qualify and come in and begin putting tests forward. That in itself might generate some chaos, uh, but this is a very aberrant outcome, what we've seen here. And people are still puzzling over what fundamentally explains this and how the situation was allowed to move in that direction. Some of it's technical, some of it's bureaucratic, uh, bureaucratic infighting and the like, some of it's lack of high level oversight at the White House or anywhere else. And I, I do fear that CDC's reputation and the reputation of its leadership has been badly damaged. And I, I do hope that is not with any lasting impact upon CDC because CDC, of course, is a national treasure. It has 20,000 skilled professionals who are essential to the response. It has the capacity, has the resources now to be on the front lines supporting states, municipalities, and counties in the response and it needs to be there. It has a critical role to play internationally as well. And so we need a strong, robust, well-led CDC in this effort. Um, on the other matter that you raise about national stockpiles, when you look at the, at the data on national stockpiles, the budget runs at about 600 million a year. Most of that budget is consumed in stockpiling uh, vaccines and therapies for things like uh, anthrax and smallpox. And those are serious threats. And that's been a decision. People who have looked at the stockpiles have said um, 600 million a year was not enough. Uh, if you uh, looked at wh what do we need here in terms of masks and ventilators and the like, the masks deteriorate over time. I think we had 12 million masks in stock last week. The administration announced it would be purchasing 500 million and that they were estimates upwards of 3.5 billion masks required in the United States over the course. So 1% of true need covered by the stockpile on the masks. I don't know offhand the number of ventilators. What I do know is in talking to people at major hospitals around the country, the answer that you get over and over again is we have X number of ventilators and 90% of them are in use today. Steve, we'll be talking more this week. Thank you for all of this and um, stay well. Thank you. You stay well. Stay well.